we want to be the first country in the world to install floating solar panels at sea. Welcome to The Job. It's the 25th of January. I'm your host, Kira Taylor. Later, we'll dive into the ways that Belgium is using the North Sea to help it decarbonize. Plus, find out how you can get free access to all of Foresight's climate and energy reporting for a month. First, let's take a look at the top climate and energy stories from around the world today. Climate change is responsible for a historic drought in the Amazon River Basin, according to new research. The area saw low rainfall and consistently high temperatures throughout 2023. River levels are reported to be at their lowest in 120 years. Scientists from the Netherlands, the UK, Brazil and the US wanted to work out whether this was due to the natural El Nino weather phenomenon or climate change. They concluded that while El Nino had about the same influence on precipitation as climate change, the strong drying trend was almost entirely due to increased global temperatures. The Amazon River Basin contains the largest rainforest in the world and is a key place for biodiversity and carbon storage. Low water levels also disrupt transport and energy production, as well as isolating communities. This affects an estimated 30 million people in Brazil, Peru, Colombia, Venezuela, Ecuador and Bolivia. The EU's executive body, the European Commission, will propose a target to reduce net emissions by at least 90% by 2040. That's according to a leaked cost-benefit analysis seen by Foresight. The target is the highest of the options considered in the draft. It is the most effective to bring the EU to climate neutrality by mid-century and will boost competitiveness in clean technologies, the text says. The 132-page document adds that the EU's domestic net emissions have fallen steadily over the past five years, but this needs to speed up to reach the EU's 2030 emissions reduction goal. The final proposal will be tabled on the 6th of February. That 2040 target will require a huge amount of work, and transport is one of the key areas that needs to change. According to the European Court of Auditors, most passenger cars on EU roads emit the same amount of CO2 as they did 12 years ago. That's despite legislation aimed at curbing emissions. Emissions have remained the same for diesel cars, dropped marginally for petrol cars, and are much higher than laboratory tests imply for hybrid cars. The only ones making a difference are electric vehicles. These accounted for one in seven new car registrations in 2022, up from one in 100 in 2018. However, there are still barriers preventing the rollout of these, including the supply of critical raw materials and the lack of charging infrastructure. Denmark and Rwanda have teamed up to support 92 developing countries compile and implement more ambitious national climate plans in order to reach the Paris Agreement goals. Together, Danish Development Corporation Minister Dan Jorgensen and Rwandan Environment Minister Jean-Darc Mouya-Maria will chair the NDC partnership. The two countries aim to work with national needs and priorities, ranging from crops that can survive climate change-induced droughts to adapting health services in countries facing new malaria cases as higher temperatures mean mosquitoes begin to spread the disease. Plans could also look at ways to increase water levels and cut emissions. The US government has delayed a decision on a liquefied natural gas project in Louisiana while it looks into the climate impact, according to the New York Times. The potential venture global project has an export capacity of around 20 million metric tonnes per year. If approved, it would be the largest export project in the US, but it has been met with opposition from environmentalists. One group, the Sierra Club, welcomed the potential delay, saying it would represent a significant positive change in policy in response to calls to halt the expansion of gas exports. 
Texas and New Mexico combined have 57 federal and state subsidies incentivizing fossil fuel extraction, costing taxpayers billions and worsening climate change and air quality. That's what new research by the National Resources Defense Council has found. In 2023, just three state oil and gas subsidies in Texas cost taxpayers $1.4 billion. Similar subsidies in New Mexico cost $86.2 million in 2022. These could cover more than half the funding for tuition-free college through the New Mexico Opportunity Scholarship, the group argues. At COP28, countries agreed to phase out inefficient fossil fuel subsidies as soon as possible, but it looks like the US has a long way to go. The UK government cannot demonstrate an adequate way of ensuring its sustainability requirements for biomass are followed, according to the country's spending watchdog. Over the last two decades, the government provided more than £20 billion in support for businesses using biomass in power and heating. In 2022, biomass made up 11% of the UK's electricity generation. If sustainability criteria are met, the government and its independent climate change committee consider biomass to be a low-carbon energy source. But while the government argues its approach to ensuring rules are followed is proportionate, the audit office says it is not enough and that the government needs to strengthen its criteria. A new tool has been developed to help cities become climate neutral. The EU City Calculator is a free open source online tool to allow councils and local actors to simulate low carbon futures. The project unites 10 pilot cities from across Europe, which are at different points of the journey to net zero. From the end of February, all European cities will be able to enrol in the learning programme to help them decarbonise. And finally, staying on the local level, Canada wants to build a new net zero fire station. Energy use in the country's public buildings produces up to 50% of municipal emissions, making them a key area to tackle. The planned building in Ontario will have automated control systems, ground source heat pumps, solar panels and a heat recovery system. It will also be constructed from mass timber and include water saving features. It comes with a hefty price tag, getting an investment of 9.3 million Canadian dollars from the country's Green Municipal Fund. However, it is expected to save almost 25,000 Canadian dollars every year in operational costs. That's it for the news today. Now onto the story of the moment. The North Sea is becoming an ever more useful resource when it comes to decarbonisation. As Sam reported on Tuesday, it's being used to link different countries' power grids. It's also being used for the expansion of renewables. But that comes with its own challenges. The North Sea is packed full of shipping lanes, fishing and biodiversity. I caught up with Belgian Deputy Prime Minister and Minister for the North Sea, Paul Van Tuchelt, to find out how the country is using the sea to help it decarbonise. He gave a keynote at a WWF conference focused on sustainable offshore renewable energy and answered some of Foresight's questions in writing. Belgium controls very little of the North Sea. Indeed, it has less than 1% of the overall space. But the country has big plans when it comes to offshore renewables. There are currently 399 wind turbines installed with a capacity of 2.2 gigawatts, and Belgium is aiming for 8 gigawatts in 2040. But it's not just looking at wind power, said North Sea Minister Paul van Tuchelt at the WWF conference in Brussels. We want to research the possibilities of new energy uh, sources. Between the windmills, we want to be the first country in the world to install floating solar panels at sea. The idea, the minister told Foresight, is to have so the panels between wind turbines to optimise the space 
and to make the best use of existing infrastructure, which already brings power to shore. A pilot project has been built to look at the cost and environmental impact of such a project. In 2026, the government hopes a 5 megawatt demonstration project will be rolled out. Belgium is also developing an energy island, named after the next in line to the throne, Princess Elizabeth. This would add another 3.5 gigawatts to the grid and help connect countries. Interconnection and cooperation with neighboring countries is uh, necessary to realize meshed grids, enable cost-effective uh, construction and connection of offshore wind farms in the North Sea. And uh, we believe that our Princess Elizabeth Island will be a crucial link in this uh, grid. Speaking to Foresight, the Minister emphasised the need to use space in a sustainable, efficient way. Multiple uses of space should be the norm, he explained. He also highlighted the need to collaborate not just on renewable energy, but also on nature restoration. Biodiversity moves between different countries' jurisdictions, making it important to work together. Biodiversity protection is something the wind industry is no stranger to. But Giles Dixon, head of industry group Wind Europe, believes it can be done better. This is what he had to say at the WWF conference. When we build offshore wind farms, there's the potential for negative biodiversity impacts. There's the potential for major positive biodiversity impacts. And we're working very hard on the latter to make the most of them through aquaculture and other things. But when there's potentially negative impacts, you need to do mitigation measures, compensation and restoration measures. On compensation and restoration, the instinct, certainly with national governments, is that those measures should be inside that same wind farm or as close as possible to it. That's nuts, because you can get far more bang for your buck if you take a broader perspective and say, okay, where, not just in this country's waters, but across the whole of the sea basin, is there a real need for biodiversity compensation and restoration measures. So we've got to take a sea-basin approach to compensation and restoration. Some national governments won't like that, but it's important that they take the bigger picture. And the wind industry is totally at one with the environmental organisations on this and with the Commissioner. Another speaker, Esther Assen, Head of Policy for WWF Europe, said the key is to work within the capacity of the sea. And for us in WWF, there are two principles that need to be at the core and the basis when we plan. One is the carrying capacity of the sea basins, because that's not infinite. We cannot just continue dumping things into the sea, seeing that, believing that it's going to keep their you know, CO2 absorption capacity. So that's first, the carrying capacities. And the second is an ecosystem-based approach. So that's what I said before, that the current Marine Special Planning Directive, it's, it looks a bit outdated. Uh, not just because we have new targets and new developments, but we've also moved forward when it comes to nature restoration. And there was a lot of controversy about the nature restoration law, that how we make then the MSP directive compatible, not just with the national energy and climate plans, but with the future also nature restoration plans. How we make sure that these nice commitments to protect 30% of our seas are becoming realities and binding targets. So there, we have a bit of a work um, Utilising space is also key. Some offshore wind turbines are getting on in years, meaning they should be replaced by more efficient models that can produce more power. The minister told Foresight that the Belgian government plans to replace turbines as they are decommissioned, with bigger ones with a larger generation capacity. However, working out how to install new, bigger models is something the wind industry is still grappling with. Here's Giles' explanation. 
Belgium is one of the first countries to develop offshore wind. They have a lot of three megawatt offshore wind turbines. Nobody builds three megawatt offshore wind anymore. Nowadays, we're installing 11, 12 megawatt turbines, and we're going up to 50 and possibly uh, slightly beyond that. So it makes sense to repower as and when you can. There's a lot of repowering of onshore wind farms that has already happened. Over 200 onshore wind farms in Europe have already been repowered. I'll be very honest, we don't know yet exactly how to do repowering of offshore wind farms. Yeah? Because we know we've got to take the foundations out of the seabed, or can we use the same foundations for larger turbines? Possibly, probably not. There's a lot of work that's still got to be done there, and of course, the environmental impacts of that will be a key factor in how we approach it. And it's not just a problem in Belgium. Lena Kitzing, board member at the European Scientific Advisory Board on Climate Change, explained at the WWF conference that Denmark has a similar conundrum. There is one wind farm when you when you come by plane, you see it uh, beautifully lined up in the in the harbour area. There is twenty turbines, and uh, actually the owners wanted to repower um, these turbines, and that's a process that at the moment is. Uh, being held up by legislation, by the regulation, there there is uh, there is questions around uh, the permitting. How long can I still operate it? About uh, other um, you know laws have changed over time. How, what is applicable and and things like that. So it's it's mostly about the legislation. It's not the economics or the technology that's being held, uh, holding up uh, the repowering of this uh, of this park. And I think that's something that we really need to think about, right? Because we need to make it easy you know, to reuse the materials that are already there. So, a lot to keep an eye on. If you're interested in more North Sea news, check out Sam's episode from Tuesday about the new interconnector between the UK and Denmark. What are your views on developing renewable energy in the North Sea? And what other areas should we be looking at when it comes to using seas to make the green transition a reality? Let us know in the contribution section. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for joining me on The Jolt. Tomorrow, Sam and I will be back to chat about the week's news. We're keen to hear what you're interested in, so please get in touch if you want us to look into a certain subject. The Jolt is free to listen to throughout January. After that, our Monday and Friday episodes will still be freely available. But why not go for the full five days and subscribe to Foresight? As a thank you for listening, we're offering a month's free access to our coverage and to our growing community of energy and climate fans. There's a link in the show notes. Once you're a member, you can get early access to the latest episode of Policy Dispatch, which came out yesterday. Thanks to everyone behind the scenes at Foresight for helping to make the jolt possible, and shout out to Meat Island for providing the theme music. Until next time, thanks for being a part of the jolt.